morning again. Thank you, Joe, and the worship team for leading us so well. For the throne of God this morning, take your Bibles, please, and turn to Psalm 139. Might be my favorite chapter in all the Bible. And I think you're going to see why. Just in reading it, if we if we had to shut down this morning, but we could read this text, it would almost be enough, I think, uh, for me and for you. We won't do that, but it's, it's beautiful. So let us hear the word of the Lord as I read this, Psalm 139, inspired by His Holy Spirit. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in before, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately, Woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet none of them, there was none of them. <clears throat> How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are far more than sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. Count them as my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Let's pray. God, <clears throat> we really could just go home now. Beautiful passage of scripture, yet so challenging and so frightening. God, I pray this morning that 
as we get to know you better, as we come to know you more, that you would shake us out of our comfort zone as we come face to face with the God who knows us. I pray, Lord, that you would grant us a greater desire for holiness in our own lives, that we would hate sin, that we would love righteousness, and that you would stir up in us a love for those who do not know you, who do not know this God. You would drive us out. You would compel us. We'd be unable to resist going out into the streets and telling the world of our great Savior and his love for sinners that this God, the God who knows, the God who's there, would become their God, and that untold millions in this country would come to know you as Lord and Savior, because God, we know a political solution will never solve this. Only the gospel, which is the power of God, the salvation for everyone who believes. Father, strengthen us and edify us and encourage us this morning, and drive us out to live godly lives, to be salt and to be light in a dark world for your glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Have you ever stopped to think this simple thought? God knows you. Sovereign, holy, righteous, infinitely perfect creator knows you. I love the way the psalmist puts it back in Psalm 8. He said, when I look to your heavens, the work of your fingers... I think he must have been outside at night looking at the stars and the, the Milky Way. You know, you go out on a, in the country on a, on a dark night and all the stars are on a clear night and you see all the, the heavens. He said, I look at the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That does not stun you and astound you, I don't think you can be stunned or astounded. What is man? The God who made, as some astronomers, astronomers uh, estimate, 100 to 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. That God. That God knows you. That God knows you better than you know yourself. And if that doesn't if that doesn't make your day, if that doesn't make you happy, we love being happy, right? Then I hope this morning that Psalm 139, which is my favorite psalm, will correct that. I want you to leave here this morning happy in Jesus. Happy that this God knows you intimately, that he is there, and that he has never and will never leave you nor forsake you. I want this to be a psalm of encouragement. And it's also the perfect segue into our Upcoming series on God's providence, which, Lord willing, I'll begin next week, which I've been talking about for a long, long time now. So the next, I don't know, 15 to 20 weeks, we'll be studying God's providence, God's rulership over all the created order, over everything, over you and your life. And we'll answer a lot of hard questions. We'll look at a bunch of Old Testament stories and, and, and wind up at the cross of Jesus Christ and show God's sovereignty in every bit of that and God's rulership over events, large and events, minuscule. I think this is the most important sermon series I've ever preached because of the world and what's going on in it now. And I think it's going to bring you a lot of comfort and a lot of hope. And if you have lost friends, that's a good time to bring them because we'll answer a lot of questions about evil and God and, and his sovereignty and how much he controls and our place in it and all that. 
So it will be evangelistic as well as, uh, as something that will strengthen us and put steel in our backbones, which is what we need in every age, right? But especially in this age. So this is the perfect segue. King David wrote this psalm. King David, the great, the great musician of the Bible, the great hymn book of the Bible here toward the end, this final book of the psalms, David wrote this. And I think he wrote it really for two reasons. And I, and I say this because of what he says, those kind of odd verses, he's, he's, he's riffing on the majesty of God, on the, the greatness of God, and all of a sudden he talks about a hatred for sinners. He makes kind of a sharp turn there toward the end, and then his own, how much he wants to hate his own sin. And so I think, I think that gives us really the purpose for this. And I think, one, David wanted to separate himself from all who deliberately practice evil. Both the evil in the world and the evildoers in the world. And that is instructive for us. We're going to get to that toward the end. He also wants to know God or wants God to search him out thoroughly. To purge him of anything that might be offensive to a holy God. One of the things we're going to see in this series on prominence is the holiness of God. There's really not a more important doctrine in all the Bible than the holiness of God and understanding our sinfulness and why sin is such an infant offense against God, both our sins and, and the sins of others. When we sin against God and when we're sinned against, why it's so offensive and why we talk about sin so often in this church. And every faithful church should talk about sin. And I think that's the two purposes. He wants to separate himself from evil and evildoers, and he wants to separate himself from his own sin. So that he walks in a manner pleasing to God. That's the purpose of the whole Bible, right? And in a sense, so we're, we're regenerated, we're made new, our hearts are made new. We're giving, given what Jonathan Edwards called a new sense of everything. We see life through new spectacles, and we see our own sin, and uh, we see God in a different way, and we want to live into him for his glory, right? And so really, this should this is... Immediately applicable. So this morning we'll look at God's omniscience and omnipresence. You said, boy, that's a, those are big words, Pastor. And you might tend to look at that and you think, well, you know, theology, that's for seminary students. Seminary is something you do over there at Southern Seminary, you know, and it's really just impractical. We just want the practical Jesus, right? We just want the practical stuff in the Bible. I think we're going to show you here this morning and see here in Psalm 39 that theology is infinitely practical. When we talk about doing theology, we talk about the conflict between the head and the heart, we say, well, one, one without the other is inadequate, and that's absolutely true. Because you think of a theology that is all head, is cold and dry and barren, is dead orthodoxy, and that will do nobody any good. If you're in seminary, you need to remind yourself that every day I had to do that. Having all the, have the, all the I's dotted and the T's crossed theologically, that's wonderful. That's a starting place, and Christian, the Christian faith is nothing, certainly not less than that, but that's not enough. But on the other hand, if you have a theology that's all heart, it might be warm, it might be comforting to you on a level, it might be practical, you think, but it also might lack substance. It might not change your life. It might not give you comfort. It it might be shallow. You might give into theological fads. And you know, we don't like fads in this church, right? We don't chase after fads. We try our best not to. There are lots of churches. You want a fad? Well, you can find them in churches. You're in Louisville and other places, right? Churches go after the world. They don't do the world as well as the world does, as it turns out. And you'll figure that out pretty soon. 
Our theology must be deep and robust, and yet it must change our lives. Change how we see God and how we see ourselves. That's really what we're after here. That's it. That's everything, is it? Knowledge of God, knowledge of self. That's everything. And that's what I want you to know as when we leave here this morning, know God better and know yourself better. And really, that's the goal every Sunday. That's nothing new. That's not a new goal. We've got a new series and next week. A new, no, no, no. It's, the goal is always the same, isn't it? It's transformation. And we only, it only comes through the Scriptures. So Psalm 139 is both head and heart. That's why I love it so much. It's a thing of beauty from every standpoint. I love it. It's theology that's practical. And all theology should be practical. So we learn two things about God and then how we should respond. Those are my three main points. The first six verses, first of all, he is omniscient. He is omniscient. We'll get to what that means in a minute, but let's look at, the, let's just look at this. It's, again, it's so beautiful. He begins, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. He, God knows him. God knows David. David's a man after God's own heart, right? He knows David, but he knows you. He knows you. The question is, for you, is do you know God? I don't mean you know facts about God, but do you really know God in a relational sense? Are you in a relation, a moment-to-moment, -moment, not just day-to-day, -day, but a moment-to-moment -moment relationship with Him in which you're dependent on Him and you understand that? and He is upholding you by His grace every moment. Are you in that relationship? Does He know you and do you know Him? David said, God has searched me and he has known me. And is his searching of you, is that a little bit frightening? These doctrines, this can be a little frightening, a little, a little intimidating. This is God we're talking about. He says, God has known me. He says, you know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You just discern my thoughts from afar. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. <laughs> and he is not Santa Claus. <laughs> not by any means. That's why I'm not a big fan of of that particular teaching in the culture because it makes him look like God, right? Because only God knows when you're sleeping and knows when you're awake. He knows everything about you, right? I think that's ironic that he says this because it's true only of God. He knows all the psalmist's thoughts. He knows your thought. He knows your thoughts right now. No sort of thing. You may be thinking, this pastor, this preacher, he's out to lunch. He's really boring. He knows that. He sees that. And <laughs> be thinking... Man, it's, we're just getting started. It's 11.39. I'm aware of the time, so I have the phone here. <laughs> so I hope he sets an alarm for 12 o'clock. God knows that. He knows your thoughts. He knows everything you're thinking. And that's a little bit intimidating, isn't it? And frightening. He knows what I'm thinking, too, about what you think about the length of my sermons. <laughs> he knows it all. It's what's good for you is good for me, right? It's true for me. God knows everything. You discern my thoughts from afar. He seems far away, but really he's near. Verse 3, you search my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. You know my path, my lying down. Literally here, the Hebrew could be translated, you have measured my traveling and my stretching out, my lying down and my sleeping. Again, he knows everything. He knows our path. He knows what you're going to do this afternoon. We're going to see in our Providence series, he's ordained what you're going to do this afternoon. He's written the script. You're, you're acting it out. Now, you're doing it according to your own free will. In a sense, that's true. Because God's ordained both the means and the ends. Again, we're getting ahead of myself into the Providence series. But, but God, God knows. He's written it in his book. And we're going to see this down in verse 16, which I, I love. 
He says, you know every word, every word, every word, even before it's on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And how much do we talk? Some guy wrote a book about this here recently. <laughs> 20,000 words a day, that's the average. Of course, some of you don't talk much. You get like 1,000 words in. Some people like me, like 40,000. And God knows the words before they come out. And that should chasten us, shouldn't it, about our talk. You can read the book. <laughs> it talks about a lot of this stuff. I have a theology of talk that I'm building on in there. But think about Matthew 12. Jesus says what about our words there? He says, you will give an account for every, the old King James says, idle word. Every sinful word, every idle word. Every sinful word, I-D-L-E, not I-D-O-L. Every idle word. Every sinful word, you're going to give an account, but God knows it. He knows you're going to say something sinful. He knows you're going to say something bad about your neighbor before you say it. Talk about in the providence series, what about sin and the sovereignty of God? How much does he know and what does he ordain? If he ordains everything, there's sin, there's all that. We're going to answer all those questions in due time, not today. Verse 5. He says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. The Lord sets our limits. We're running the path set before us. Remember back in Hebrews chapter 12, he talks about the race set before us. There is a race set before us, but the track we run on, the race we run is set by God. God sets the course of your life. So if you're complaining about where you are today, I always tell my kids, don't take it up with me, take it up with God. He has you where he has you today. You hate your career, you hate your job, you hate your, you know, you don't like the, your family, <laughs> you don't like something, your marriage, something. God has written your story out. He hymns you in. He sets your limits. He lays his hand upon us. You hem me in. Here's a, a Hebrew word used throughout the Old Testament. To, it describes cities besieged by armies. You know, the dreaded siege, the siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. They surrounded the city and starved them out. They, they, they were around them. God has you surrounded. You're always surrounded. He has you under siege in a sense. God has you surrounded. He's always with you. And he's marked out your path. He, he knows. He sets our limits. He knows them because he set them. In verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. He doesn't get far, does he? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It boggles our minds. I mean, we talked about last week the eternality of God. And you just, you want to get a headache, you just sit and you do this. You put your head in your hands and you think, God, there's never been a time when God was not. And you just think about that. When I was a, a kid, I would think about that. So I was taught this by faithful men in my church. And, and I thought, this is too great for me. And all I could say was this. This is all he can say is, this is just too great for me. I don't understand it. I could never understand it. It boggles our minds. Such knowledge is too great. I mean, we know about God, don't we? We know what he has been pleased to reveal to us in his word. But we certainly don't know everything. In fact, we probably only know a fraction we can't fathom, we can't measure the depths of God. I love what uh, Paul wrote in Romans eleven thirty three. 33. He comes to the same conclusion. He, he, he has all these, he unpacks this truth of justification by faith, sinfulness of man, and how we ought to live in a lot of that. And then finally he just says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable, how unsearchable, how unfathomable, unable to measure him or his judgments. 
and how inscrutable his ways. Inscrutable means we just we can't understand it. It gives us a headache. We're not God. We're not God. We're not the hero of the Bible. The Bible's not about us. It's about God. Some pastors need to learn that lesson. Some theologians need to learn that lesson. It's about God. Our theology starts with God and it ends with God. We measure ourselves not by the person in the pew beside us. We measure ourselves by a holy God who is omniscient. What does omniscient mean? Well, omni means all and science means knowledge. To have all knowledge. To be all-knowing. So this means to be all-knowing. God is all-knowing. He knows everything. And that's what, that's what the psalmist is saying here. He says, before I say a word, I speak a word, it comes forth from my lips, you know it. When I wake up and sleep, he knows how much sleep I'm going to get tonight. If I'm going to be sleep-deprived. My dog's going to act up all night and I want to kill him to keep, from keeping me awake, you know. But I stay awake, God knows it. And we're going to see in the providence series, he doesn't just know it, he wrote the script. He ordained it. And that's the most controversial part of God's sovereignty, isn't it? We're fine with the God who knows everything, we're just not fine with the God who controls everything. We're good Democrats, little d, before you throw eggs or something at me or fruit or something. We're little d, we love the vote. We want to choose, but we don't want a God who will choose. Right? But he's omniscient. He knows everything. And that should unsettle us. And this is an attribute we share. There are some attributes of God. The communicable attributes are called. Theologians call them. He communicates to us. We share them. But not this one. This God alone is omniscient. I'd love to be omniscient, wouldn't you? I wouldn't have to study as much. I'd just come out here and preach. <laughs> I wouldn't have to study. I'd play golf on Friday. I'd just come in and just spit it out, you know. I love books. I love learning. You do too. Some of you. I know some of you, man. I love learning. I'd love to know everything. I crave omniscience sometimes, and you probably do too, but God alone is omniscient. Only a being that is infinite and eternal is capable of knowing everything. But we're finite creatures, even though we're know-it-alls, and especially our teenagers. <laughs> Saw a great bumper sticker, hire a teenager while he still knows it all, you know, and I'm, you, can, you, know, you know, you parents can laugh about that. It's true, and it was true of me, but we don't know it all, do we? We know very little. And the older we get, the more we know. I don't know much. I, I, I feel like borderline, you know, uh, 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 borderline challenged, mentally challenged at this point in my life. But God knows everything. We don't know everything. We're finite. And our knowledge is finite. It is limited. Finite means limited. God is able to be aware of all things, to understand all things, to comprehend all things. God never learns anything new. Boy, if you're in high school or college, wouldn't you love that? You just go and show up and take the exam and you make 100, right? God doesn't learn anything new. Everything, he knows absolutely everything there is to know. And God's knowledge is not a special knowledge in the sense he is illogical. God is a logical God. He created logic. But his logic goes much deeper than human logic and rationality. He's more rational than we are. People say, well, Christianity is not a rational faith. It most certainly is. Our God is a rational God. We just, because we are fallen, we are not omniscient, though we wish we were and sometimes we think we are, we, our knowledge is severely limited. And it's imperfect. Sometimes the things we think we know, we don't really know, right? All knowledge is always directly before God. God doesn't have to go to a hard drive and access information, kind of get it out like on an old floppy disk and go, okay, I've got it here. We're going to look at it. No. It's all bound up in Him. 
All of it. R.C. Sproul said, God's omniscience also grows out of his omnipotence. So God is omniscient. He's also omnipotent. Omni means all potent, means powerful. Like, so God is all powerful, right? And this is an attribute that grows out of his power, his being all powerful. Sproul said, God is not all knowing simply because he has applied his superior intellect to a sober study of the universe and its, all its contents. Rather, God knows all because he created all and he has willed all. As sovereign ruler over the universe, God controls the universe. It is impossible for God to know all without controlling all. They go together. That's why it's not enough just to say God knows, looks down through the corridors of time and sees what's going to happen and goes, yes, I know it. Because if God, the perfect being, knows it, it's going to happen. It can't happen otherwise, right? So it's fixed. We might as well go ahead and say, well, he ordains it that way, like the Bible does. I think we try to get God off the hook a lot of times. So, well, you know, I don't know about that God that controls everything. We need to get him off the hook. Well, beloved, God does not need to be gotten off the hook. <laughs> Certainly not by the likes of us, right? We don't need to get him off the hook for anything. God created everything. He is on the hook for everything except evil. And we're going to get to see that in the prominent series as well. I mean, think about the practical implications of his omniscience and his omnipotence. Especially his omniscience, uh, omniscience. For the believer, God's omniscience offers security. God is in control of everything. God is not puzzled by your circumstances that puzzle you. He's not puzzled by the things that puzzle us so easily. Problems in our lives. This also shows we cannot hide from God. We cannot hide anything from God. The unbeliever cannot hide from God. Their sins are exposed. Remember what did Adam do in the garden? God comes walking in the cool of Eden. The garden says, Adam, where are you? He hides from God. And God is not asking, where are you? Because he doesn't know. He's like, I wonder if Adam's over here. I wonder if he's behind that tree, behind that bush, behind the zebra. Where is Adam? No, he knows. That's for our benefit. In the scriptures, right? That's so we'll know God is looking for you. And Adam pathetically tries to hide. And we do the same. Unbelievers cannot hide from God. Their sins are exposed. Our sins are exposed as believers. Both God's love and God's wrath extend to every corner of the universe. God is a loving God everywhere, and he's a wrathful God everywhere, all the time, every moment. He hates sin all the time, and he loves his people all the time. That never stops. God doesn't just fly off the handle like, well, I was loving a minute ago, but now I've got my belt, and I'm going to let you have it because I'm upset with you. No, no, no. He's always wrathful against sin. God doesn't toggle between these attributes like, well, I'm omniscient at one moment, and then I'm omnipotent at another moment. No, no, he's always all these things all the time. And that's hard for us to comprehend, isn't it? Theologians call it being a simple being. He's a simple, a doctrine of God's simplicity. He's all these things all the time. So it's, it's comforting to us. Because God is always, he, he knows everything. He knows our circumstances. He's more intimately acquainted with them than we are. He knows what's behind him. He knows what's going on in 10,000 ways around us that we cannot see. All the circumstances he's ordaining, what he's doing to bring us out of our circumstances or minister to us in our circumstances or to teach us in our circumstances. I don't know about you, but that, that make, gives me great comfort. He loves us. I know he loves his children. He Every circumstance, whether we... See it this way or not, it was ordained for our good and for his glory, but always for our good. Always, 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 even and maybe even especially the painful circumstances. Again, we're going to spend a lot of time on that in the weeks ahead, Lord willing. 
but there's also a threat. There's a threat tacit within God's omniscience, implied within God's omniscience, because God sees our secret sins. On Moses, back in Psalm 90, we looked at a couple of Sundays ago. He says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in line of your presence. There are no secrets with God. If you're sinning, God sees it. God knows it, right? A.W. Pink noted, notes that God's omniscience fills us with uneasiness. Because there's a sense in which this morning you're a little uneasy with this, aren't you? Or maybe you should be. Because he knows everything about us. And there are corners of our lives that we, we really don't want anyone to know about. If we played the tape of our lives, what would that look like? How embarrassed would we be? I'd be really embarrassed. And I'm guessing you would too at points. There's points of which I'd be maybe happy, <laughs> but points in which I, I wouldn't. Because So there's a threat here. It fills us with uneasiness. Because when we have something to hide... And sinful man does have something to hide, as Noah proved, this can be the cause of great consternation. The notion of an omniscient God who knows each person through and through and through, it can make you deeply fearful, and with good reason. But as I love to say, as I've said in the past, drawing on the Lord of the Rings movies, we're not fearful enough, are we? I don't think this strikes fear in us enough that God is omniscient. Talk about justice. Stroll said God's omniscience means he is able to be the perfectly just judge because he has perfect and complete information. There is no evidence that is ever kept from him. All the mitigating circumstances are known to him. So if we're guilty, God knows we're guilty. If we're innocent, God knows we're innocent. He doesn't have to go finding. He's not a detective. He's the hound of heaven. And that should bring us comfort as well, knowing that he's a just God. Justice will be satisfied in the end. Everything will be set right. You know, in our, our current culture's drive for justice, it'll never be perfect justice. Doesn't mean we shouldn't work for it. Certainly, do, we do want things to be right as much as possible in this world. But it will never be perfect. I think sometimes we want a utopia here in our country. There's so much injustice. But there's always been injustice in this country and in every country that's ever existed. Read the Old Testament. Injustice in the Old Testament? Yeah. Was there injustice at Calvary? The greatest injustice has ever been perpetrated against a man. At Calvary. God knows he's omniscient. Secondly, he's omnipresent, verses 7 to 12. God is everywhere. Omni, all, present, present, <laughs> accounted for. He is everywhere. There is no place where God is not. He knows all things and He is everywhere. Yet God, of course, is a spirit. He has no physical properties so that He does not physically occupy any place. That's kind of hard to get our minds around, isn't it? We see this for me. Sproul said, the barrier between God and us is not a barrier of space or time. To meet God, there is no, not a where to go or a when to occur. To be in the immediate presence of God is to step into another dimension we step into a dimension in which we are never outside his presence. Never, ever, ever. And if anything ever made us uneasy, that should do it. He 
knows what you're thinking. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. And he is always with you. Always, always, and everywhere. As one of my favorite theologians insightfully points out, there's a second aspect of God's omnipresence which is often overlooked. The omni relates not only to the places where God is, but also how much of God is in any given place. I think we sometimes think, well, you know, God is partly in Hong Kong, and then he's in like Brisbane, and he's in, you know, Switzerland, and some of him's in Louisville. His head somewhere is, we just, because, you know, we, we think in human terms. But God is always present 100% everywhere, all the time, all the time. Fully present in every place, at every moment. I mean, we have full access to God every moment. Not partial access. God's not distracted like we are. This is called, sometimes theologians call this the doctrine of God's immensity. He is fully present everywhere all the time. He's immense, right? His immensity. Knows no boundaries. Verse 7, he starts asking questions. Where shall I go from your spirit? Can I hide? Where shall I flee from your presence? And the answer implied is, of course, what? What's the answer, Christ fellowship? Where can I go from God's presence? Where? Nowhere. Nowhere. You got that right. <laughs> Nowhere. Because God is everywhere. Verse 8. He says, if I ascend to heaven, there you are. If I make my bed in Sheol, that means the grave, you're there. If I go up, you're there. If I go down, you're there. Verses 9 and 10, he says, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. He's saying this. From east to west, north and south, there is nowhere on earth I can leave God's presence. For God's children, this should not frighten us, but should be a means of deep comfort and security for us. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and he will not. He cannot. Always there to lead us and to hold us. That's what he says to you. He's always leading you, always holding you. So why are we so filled with anxiety about the world with devils filled, as Luther sings about it? Spurgeon says this, we could only, we could only fly away from God by his power. The Lord would be leading, covering, preserving, and sustaining us even when we were fugitives from him. We could run from God and he would still be there. I always teased my wife and said, if you ever leave me, I'm going to go with you. <laughs> but she could hide from me, right? Don't do that. <laughs> She's shaking her head, no, that's good. We can't hide from God. We can't hide from God. Ask Jonah about hiding from God. Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, there's almost, there's a hint of humor here, I think. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The humor's not there. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. I'm going to get out of the presence of God. <laughs> I'm going to leave him in the dust. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. Away from the presence of the Lord. He says it again. Away from the presence of the Lord. I don't think it's kind of funny. It's like, 
So here comes the gnat, and he's going he's gonna to step into the ring with the elephant. <laughs> here we go. Get those gloves on. Here we go. I mean, we're the gnat, and he's the elephant, right? Jonah, you're going to get away from the presence of God. Right. You're going to get in the ship. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. Not so fast, Jonah. We're going to look at this story in our Providence series, but what happened? God sent a big fish, and it swallowed Jonah. So if you want to be fish bait, then try to run from God. Be my guest. When I was called to ministry, my thought was, I'm going to run from God as far as I can, and if he wants me in ministry, he'll get me in ministry. And you obviously know the rest of the story because here I stand, and I can do no other. But my thought was, I'm going to run, and if I can run... Actually, my brother gave me this advice as a missionary, and it was good advice. And you, if I run and I don't go in ministry, great. I'm not called to ministry. But I tried to run, and boy, now he didn't, he didn't, it didn't take a, a whale to get, or a big fish to get me here either, thankfully. You can't run from God. You can't hide from God, can you? He goes on to say, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and light about me shall be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. One old commentator wrote, Never has the pen of a man been more effectively described the omnipresence of God. God does not need the light on to see you. Turn off the light, and God still sees you. There's no darkness in him. And it's a great segue to what he says next. He speaks of the womb next, right? As we move on through this, he speaks of the womb, which is what? A dark place. There's no light bulbs in there. We can see them through the ultrasound, which is one of the greatest inventions ever. We're seeing Jake, my son, and we have a picture of him and his face, and it looks like him. It is so cool. It looks like, sort of like he looks now, less hair. It looks like him. There's darkness in there, isn't there? God can see in the dark. God can see us. We're always with him. We can, he never leaves us nor forsakes us. He's always there. It says in verse 15, verse 14, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it well. My frame is not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now, on Sanctity of Life Sunday, this is our text, right? And rightly so, because you were fearfully and wonderfully made. There's personhood here. There's personhood. Even before you're conceived, there's personhood. Life begins at conception, and we must do everything we can to fight to the death for that truth. It's right here, isn't it? God ordained it. God put the baby there. We dare not snuff out its life. We are murderers every time we do it. Every time. Every time. And it should break our hearts, shouldn't it, that 70 million babies have died in the past since 1973. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He has knit you together in your mother's womb. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're made in his image. You have value you have value because of God, right? And, and you're not an accident. No matter the circumstances of your birth, you are here because God willed you to be here. And you have worth and dignity. That person standing at the bottom of the off-ramp with a sign that says, I need money, I'm hungry. They've got dignity. God knit them together in somebody's womb sometime, a long time ago. And they have dignity and worth. And we must understand that. 
and minister in light of that and have compassion in light of that. Every person, all the time, we are truly in every way pro-life because God is. But right here, he's right, but God saw it. God knit. He's saying, this is how intimately you know me. You knit me together. You knitted me together. That's how intimately you know me. You were there, not just at my birth, like the anxious father, <laughs> but you were there before that. You were present. That's what he's saying here. We're never without an audience with God, are we? Never, never, never. I mean, the fact that all of God is always present everywhere should be a profound comfort to us because we can always be certain that we have God's undivided attention. When you pray, God's not trying to deal with Jim over here or Jenny over here and like, wait a minute, hold on, I can't hear, I'm talking to Jenny, okay, she's got, you know, cancer, pay cancer in her family over here and you've got, you know, there's a hurricane coming over here. No, God, you have his undivided attention all the time. Always have an audience with him. Has he known you for the foundation of the world? Knit you together in his mother's womb. Hagar in Genesis 18 cried out, You are the God who sees, and indeed he does. We're never alone. I always think of Louis Zamperini and the movie Unbroken and the book, which is far better, by the way. Watch the movie, but read the book. It tells his testimony. Wonderful. Uh, wonderful. I'll give a little more about his testimony. Not as much as I'd like, but, but, uh, but still. Louis Zamperini, the movie Unbroken, adrift. On a raft, 47 days during World War II in the Pacific Ocean. 47 days of two other men. One of them eventually died. It was just him. He didn't have much out there. He didn't have anything much with him. He had uh, a few Hershey rations, a, a flare gun, some drinking water, a uh, fishing line. That's about it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it must have been like in the Pacific Ocean? Just thousands and thousands of square miles of water and nothing else. How alone he must have felt. And yet he wasn't alone. Zamperini went home and he had a mental breakdown after that. No wonder, but came to know, came to Christ in 1949, a Billy Graham crusade. Became a, a, a wonderful, wonderful, uh, gave a wonderful testimony of the grace of God in his life. But he said after that, I knew, I always knew then, and I know now, I was never alone for even one second out there. We're not alone, are we? So God is omniscient, He is omnipresent, and finally, He is worthy of our worship and obedience. I've already kind of started in those verses, verses 13 to 24. Because He is this God, He is worthy of our worship. And that's, what he's, that's why He bursts forth. The psalmist bursts forth in verse 14, I praise you. In the context of being fearful and wonderful made, I praise you. I praise you, O God. In light of his omniscience and omnipresence and his omnipotence, all of his attributes, that is the proper response. That's why we're here this morning, but it should be the proper response every single day for you. Praise you, O oh God. I praise you because you know me, because you're with me, and because you're all-powerful. Nothing in this universe is spinning out of control. The last two weeks, it, it feels a lot like something's out of control here, doesn't it? It isn't. God is sovereign over every, every blade of grass and every grain of sand, every, every hurricane and every country. God's in Afghanistan. Yes, we need to pray. It's a means to an end. We need to pray fervently, but God is there. God has not left them. He didn't fly out with the last plane out. He won't, when the deadline comes, he's not going to leave. God can get things done. God can do what we cannot. God can change hearts, first of all. 
Boy, wouldn't it be something if the Taliban became Christians? <laughs> God can do it. You say, that's silly. No, God can do it. He saved a wretch like me. We worship him and we adore him. That's what he does here. That's verses 17, 18. He says, how precious are your, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than sand. I awake and I am still with you. He can't comprehend God. God is incomprehensible. And then he says something that we find a little odd, especially to 21st century ears, when, when we prize above everything niceness, right? We want to be nice to each other. And I, I think we should be nice to each other. Don't get me wrong. Pastor Jeff doesn't want to be nice to anybody. No, no, no. We do prize niceness over everything, I think, sometimes. He says, this is verses 19 to 22. I had to think a lot about this because I've wondered, how does this go with what comes before? He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. I don't think Hallmark's going to put that on a greeting card anytime soon, you know? <laughs> Here's your encouraging word today. Oh, that God would slay the wicked. Not seen any of you share that on Facebook recently. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you, God, with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you? Oh, my goodness. Did David really say that? We need to rebuke David. He said, do I not hate those who hate you? This is the Bible. Friends, this is the word of God. God wrote this, okay? Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. What if your nine-year-old said this to you? What would you say to them? I hate the enemies of God. I hate them all. I hope they go die. Where did you get that? Bible. <laughs> Man, do with this. Is this one of those texts that proves that the Bible is full of errors, that it's errant? I couldn't believe in a God that would have a man after his own heart that would say something like that. Squeamish, doesn't it? Well, no, the Bible is not, is, is inerrant. We believe that, and I believe it absolutely is true, of course. I mean, this reads a lot like an imprecatory psalm, right, with David calling down judgment on the wicked. But I don't think judgment's quite the thrust of these verses, though it's similar to passages elsewhere. And there are judgment passages elsewhere where he calls down judgment. I think here's the bottom line. He's saying, I want nothing to do with the evil and the evil men that men devise. I want nothing to do with them. And we say, well, we hate the sin, but we love the sinner. And that sounds really good. And I know there's some truth in that. Sounds nice, like good advice. But it's also hard to do because, as James Boyce point, wisely points out, love the sinner, if we're not careful, can lead to a love of the sinner's ways and then to a participation in their sins, if we're not careful. Right? David was not at all sure he could love one and hate the other. I think that's clear from this text. So he decided to separate from evil people continually. He did not want to be with those who openly were openly marked by evil or were hatching evil actions. He was no part of that. He didn't want anything to do with anybody, or he didn't want anybody to be a stumbling block to his relationship with the Lord. We apply that today. Here's how I think we apply this today. We need to see sin the way God sees sin. You say, well, we do. Sometimes we do, but not as often as I think we should. And here's an example. 
And I don't think you, I wonder you think I'm harping on this, but I think this is a very clear illustration. Take the sin of homosexuality. And I take that sin, and I've done this quite a bit lately, not because I love to harp on that or I hate those people. I, that's not true. But it's because it's, it's in our faces every day. The, the culture has shoved this down our throats and successfully gotten, made it normative. But I think we're starting to make it normative, especially among Reformed Christians. And it's really, it's, 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 it's a fine line. I think we put homosexuality and LGBTQ in this category, and I would in this category. Now, I'm not saying we should hate the people traveling those ungodly lifestyles. We want them to come to church. We want them to be set free. But we've never, 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 never affirmed their lifestyle. What God hates, we have no right to love. And I know this sounds like, wow, he's probably going to get in trouble. This is going out on Facebook. Well, I'm, uh, this is the word of the Lord, right? And I don't want to harp on this, but I think it's, we, we, we really flirt with this day because I think we fear man more than we do God. We don't want to be seen as these unfeeling ogres who hate people. But let me ask you this. Would we write an article that says, I'm a person who's, I'm attracted to murder. I'm attracted to murder. I, I really want to murder someone all the time, but praise God, I'm trying to walk with the Lord anyway. Would we write that article? I'm attracted to adultery. I just, I want to cheat on my spouse every moment. I'm, so, I'm an adultery-attracted married woman or man. But yet we write articles, I see them all the time, about I'm a same-sex-attracted person and I'm just trying hard. I'm really sacrificing for God, but I'm married and I'm trying hard. I think that's compromise. I think that's playing with sin. We almost celebrate that because I think we want to be accepted by the culture. We're not mean like other Christians. I'm not here trying, trying to encourage you to be mean to people. That's not what I'm saying. We should love people and be gracious and kind to homosexuals and heterosexual sinners, sinners of all kinds because such were some of you. But I think, again, this one sin, we've sort of put it into a special category, I think. Especially among Reformed Christians, where we just, we almost prize people who struggle with this particular sin. Would we prize people who struggle with adultery or murder or, uh, I don't know, pride? I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't think we would. And we pray for these people and we witness to these people. And if we love them, we want them to come to know Jesus Christ to be liberated from these godless sins, these, these destructive lifestyles. But it's wickedness. It's pure wickedness. And we have to call it that. That's what David, I think that's sort of the application. He's saying, I don't want anything to do with that. And yet you hear people say, I'm leaving the church because all my homosexual friends, they wouldn't feel comfortable there. Yeah, I'll admit you. If you come here to be, if you're to come here and say, I'm an adulterer and I want to feel comfortable with my adultery and comfortable with my anger and comfortable with my pride or my homosexuality or whatever, that you're not going to be comfortable hearing the Word of God preached every Sunday. I'm not comfortable with the Word of God preached every Sunday, and I do the preaching. I'm not comfortable with this sometimes, right? But we want to compromise. Again, that's just one, I think, clear example. We need to be very careful. Now, of course, we, don't, we want to invite people. We want to love them in the sense of we share the gospel with them, but we never say, you're, all, you're okay and I'm okay. Never, 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 never. I mean, David wants to continue walking and growing in God's way. That's the, the last two verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. He follows that up with search me, O God. Make sure there's no evil way in me. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. He's saying, I want you to look at me. Even my attitude toward same-sex attracted people and homosexuals. Try me, O Lord. Try. Do I hate these sinners too much? 
Do I hate adulterers too much? Do I hate them? Search me, O God, and know my heart. David wants to put sin to death. Now, can we hate people? You know, can, can we hate sin to a point where we hate the people, hate them, with a, you know, I, I think, to a sinful degree? Of course we can. And that's not what David's advocating. That's what I'm not advocating. So let's hear me clearly, okay? I don't want any confusion here. He says, search me and know my heart. This should be the cry of every Christian. Every day we should hate sin and want it put to death. As the old Puritan John Owen put it, we must be killing sin or it'll be killing us. And I think that's how serious sin should be taken, that David's hating it. He wants nothing to do with it. And again, not, that's not one special category of sin. I'm just, I use that as an illustration simply because I think we are very close to compromising with that. And we see churches and denominations that do all the time. And yet Romans 1 says there is a special category. That that's how low society can go when that sin is being celebrated. Romans 8, 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If we know God is omniscient and omnipresent and, of course, omnipotent, then we're going to know ourselves as deeply sinful and in need of clinging to Him. Clinging to Him. How does it make you feel that God knows you intimately? Your every thought, your every deed, your every heart motive. He knows every motive of your heart. Does that make you uneasy? Does it frighten you a little? Does it comfort you? Maybe a little bit of both. It makes me comfortable and uncomfortable. <laughs> Does it make you want to repent? If you're not a Christian, it should scare you absolutely to death. God knows you, and He's there. But if you're in Christ, it's true that God still sees your every sinful thought, knows your every sinful motive, Seizure every sinful deed, but it's also true that he looks at you and sees you in Christ. In Christ. He sees you in Christ. And he sees the righteousness of Jesus won through his sinless life and his death on the cross, and he sees you as righteous. This can be of great comfort to you because you're in Christ. You're in Christ. He sees you that way. And that makes an eternity's difference, doesn't it? God is everywhere. God knows everything. And that should lead us to worship Him today and every day of our lives. And seek to hate sin and love righteousness. And take this gospel to those who are lost. People who are who are captive to sexual sin and every other kind of sin, to take this gospel, and I hope in two weeks we're going to begin doing that in earnest, so that they might come to know this God. They might love Him and glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Father, You are omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. We worship you and praise you and adore you today. I thank you for this text, and Lord, I know that I have not done it justice for sure. But I pray that you would bind it to our hearts, that you would cause us to hate sin with every fiber of our being and love righteousness with every fiber of our being. And that, Lord, we would seek to take this gospel out into the streets to rescue those who are walking in darkness now. 
so that someday they will stand before you and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in the presence of the Lord, the God who never leaves us nor forsakes us. And God, I pray that this text would be of great comfort to those today who are in circumstances that are uh, bringing anxiety and turmoil to their lives, Lord. I pray that they would see that you are there and you know their circumstances, you know them intimately, and you love them, and you sent your son to die for them. You would comfort and strengthen them today. Give us grace to live in light of this, these great doctrines, these great attributes. For your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.